Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. We could stop there and be done early. What do you think? It's, it's such a familiar passage that it's hard to know what to do with it. Uh, what's there to say that hasn't been said a million times? And the temptation is to jump immediately to application. How do we live this out? But it's worth unpacking again. First of all, why is this passage here in the lectionary? Why now? Well, there are three cycles within the church year. The cycle of light goes from Advent through Christmastide and Epiphany. And we focus there on Jesus coming into the world. The light has come and the darkness has not overcome it. Then the second cycle is the cycle of life, which is Lent, Holy Week, Eastertide to Pentecost, where we focus on the new life that has come through Christ. The resurrection, life has overcome death. And then, in ordinary time, which we're in now, is the cycle of love. It's a season of responding to God in love and living out his love in the world. The cycle of love is the love of Jesus poured out through the Holy Spirit, the self-sacrificing love that overcomes evil. I'll put it like this. The God of love invites us to become a people of love, living a life of love. That's the invitation here. The God of love invites us to be a people of love, living a life of love. Let's start with the context. It's the week of the Passover. Jesus has made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Hosanna is acclaiming him as the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And he's going through a gauntlet of prime time, public interviews, prominent celebrity influencers prodding him and testing him with final exams. Notice the, the public spectacle of this. These are not sincere seekers having a genuine theological discussion with Jesus. This is a mob going in for the gotcha moment. These are the community gatekeepers who rule people in or out. We're going to grill him and discredit him. So the Pharisees get together, and one of them, an expert in the law, tests him. And an organization has an interest, and someone in the designated is a designated spokesperson. Maybe the best qualified, most visible, most followers. I wonder if this expert was eager to be the hitman if he fought his way to have the limelight. You think of that guy, and it's usually a guy that is the first to be at the microphone in the Q&A. Maybe he relishes this role. Or on the other hand, it could be possible that the council naturally defers to the most senior, wisest elder to be the representative. In any case, the expert speaks on behalf of others and voices the question that the community wants him to ask. Let's pause there for a moment, because sometimes in organizational community settings, we find ourselves facing an external crisis. There's a threat to our org. Maybe it's a detractor or a rival or negative reviews or bad press or viral tweets. We are losing followers. We might lose donors. We're going to lose funding. Someone has to say something. Somebody has to do something. So the expert speaks, which is the greatest commandment. And it's not just a question. It's a test. And it's a test not just of Jesus, but of himself and the leaders, because the test is for all of us. When a crisis comes, when we feel threatened, what is our response? What is our posture? Do we react defensively? Do we seek to defeat the threat? Or do we truly seek divine wisdom? Do we seek discernment to follow God's call for us, even if it's not a word that we might want to hear? So Jesus responds, 
with a straightforward response, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And this is nothing new to them. This is Deuteronomy 6. It's the cornerstone of Hebrew Identity 101. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And that one God, your God, the God of Israel, not the gods of Egypt, not the gods of the other nations, or the powers of Rome, or the earthly idols of mammon or celebrity, Jesus reminds them of Israel's fundamental identity. You are the people of God, this God, Yahweh, who called you out of bondage to be a light to the nations. Don't forget your identity. Don't forget who you are. And that fundamental identity is rooted in love. Love the Lord your God. Why? Because he is the God of love. That is who he is. He is the loving God who birthed you, raised you, freed you, redeemed you. There's an implicit contrast here with all the other gods who are not loving, who are not worthy of love. Other gods did not expect to be loved. They were to be feared. They were to be obeyed or to be served. Other gods demanded iron, gold, blood. They were to be appeased. They were not beloved. In contrast, the God of Jesus, the Father that he called Abba, is the God of love who invites us into relationship. It's not the abstract God of the philosophers, the distant God of the Stoics, the deist watchmaker God unconcerned about our lives. This is the deeply personal and relational God whose very identity is community, Trinitarian loving relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That son now invites Israel and us to participate in that love. Be not afraid. You don't have to fear this God. You can love this God. And this is where many of us get stuck. Because our religious or cultural upbringing gave us a very different posture to God. We grew up fearing God. Or learned that God is to be served or obeyed out of fear of punishment. Maybe God is to be honored or respected, but can he actually be loved? Is he worthy of, of love? Can, can we trust him with love? More complicated, can we really love God when there's this infinite power distance between the God of the universe and us? Even on a human level, we're suspicious when there's a big power differential in a relationship. If the CEO of a company asks out the college intern, that's creepy. <laughs> if someone starts dating a movie star or professional athlete, we wonder, is it really just about the celebrity? Or, you know, do they just hope to be Taylor Swift's next, break, next breakup song? <laughs> now, that's why fairy tales and rom-coms eliminate the power difference. Princess Jasmine disguises herself as a commoner and runs into Aladdin in the marketplace. Romeo and Juliet meet at a masquerade ball, and they don't know each other's family identity. In You've Got Mail, Meg Ryan, the small bookshop owner, meets Tom Hanks, the corporate book chain guy. When they're online, they don't know who the other is, so they can meet on equal ground. That's why Jesus' response to love our God is now different than ever before in human history, in Jewish history, because now the Lord our God has come down to earth. It is hard to love an abstract God in the sky. So we need to meet God in the flesh. 
The love of God is embodied in the life and ministry of Jesus. And for three years, he has revealed the character of God the Father over and over. He has lived out this love that embraces the outsider, heals the sick, sees the unseen, welcomes the marginalized. He tells of the Father who calls us his children, who weeps over our absence, who runs to us as the loving Father when we return from our waywardness, and he restores us to be his heirs. This is the loving God who raises us from death to new life. This is what makes the Christian story distinct from every other religion and philosophy. This is the God of love, the only God who invites us into love. And I have to admit that this picture of the loving God, I resist it uh, because I came from an Asian American context with an engineer father who was an INTJ thinker type, who was not expressive in emotion. My mental picture of God was he was to be honored and respected from a distance. And I've learned that different cultural contexts communicate love in different ways, and we discern the love even in passive nonverbal expressions. And there's multiple love languages. We express and receive love. The challenge is learning to communicate love in ways that the other can hear and receive. But in any case, however it's expressed, the posture that God invites us into is an active, relational, reciprocal love. Not distance, not indifference but love. And the distinctive kind of love here is agape love, self-giving, self-emptying love, not romantic love, not erotic love. It's bigger than friendship love. It's bigger than family love. The love that Jesus invites us into is one where we experience his self-emptying sacrifice on behalf of us. And that love changes us. It gives us the capacity to love with that same kind of selflessness when we seek the good of the other. We become people whose love for God means that we seek his good. I think one of the simplest reminders of this is the Lord's Prayer. When we become the people who know and pray to God our Father, the God of love, we ask for his name to be hallowed, for him to be known, for his goodness. We seek his good purposes in the world, for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done here and now. Loving God means that we're seeking his purposes in the world for his goodness and justice and mercy to be done. And that's the first word that Jesus gives to the expert. And it corrects the defensive posture, the stance of self-protection. He diffuses the sense of threat by redirecting, reminding the religious leaders of their common shared identity. All of us together are beloved by God. We are invited to love him with every part of who we are. His love fills and transforms all of us. When our hearts are weary, when our hearts are broken, he heals our hearts. We can give our hearts to him. When our souls are weighed down with fear or despair, we entrust our souls to his care. When our minds are divided or distracted or disturbed or deconstructing, we can let the love of God illumine our minds with new light and hope. But Jesus doesn't stop there. It's not just that we come to know God as the God of love. It's also that we become a people of love who love others. The second commandment follows immediately. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love is not a private, individualistic exchange between us and God. It must also flow out horizontally to others as well. To your neighbor, your family, your community, your world. Love one another. Jesus is not just talking to individuals. He is forging a community. We are not just the objects of God's love, we're also the agents of God's love. We have agency. 
we have the capacity to receive love and to give love to others. Why? Because we are created in the image of a loving God. God is love. It's who he is. It's what he does. And we are created in his loving image. Love is fundamentally who we are as, as well. We've been created by love, for love, to love. Because he first loved us, so we can love others. Rocks do not have the capacity to love others. There are people who love rocks. Geology is an important science, and we are grateful to geologists for their work in understanding mineral resources, land and water management, energy sustainability, all the rest. And I love rocks. I, I love the beauty of amazing crystals and gemstones, of agates and quartz and jade and amethyst. But as much as we might love rocks, rocks cannot love us. They do not have the capacity to express love to others. Rocks were not created in the image of God, but we were. We were designed to receive and give love. Years ago, I heard an apocryphal story from a conference speaker. The story goes that there was a married couple that was having difficulties, and the husband went to their pastor for help and said, Pastor, I just I don't know what to do. I just don't love her anymore. And the pastor said, Well, remember, the Bible says, Husbands, love your wives. And the husband said, But pastor, you don't understand. My wife moved out, and she's now staying at a friend's house down the block. The pastor responded, Well, the Bible also says, Love your neighbor. The husband said, but pastor, it's so bad that whenever she sees me, she throws things at me. She tried to run me over with a car. The pastor responded, well, the Bible also says, love your enemy. <laughs> it's a silly story, and I hope the pastor gets more concrete at the guidance. But the main theme is that for Christians, our overall posture toward all people should be love. Love does not depend on the state of the other their hostility or indifference or actions. A simple definition is that love seeks the good of the other, regardless of who that other is and whatever they may be or do. Love seeks the flourishing of the other. Love seeks the common good. First John is all about love, both receiving God's love for ourselves as well as extending God's love to others. The two are intertwined. First John 4 says, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And he has given this command, anyone who loves God must love their brother and sister. The call to love our neighbor completes the call to love God. We cannot physically see God, so how can we love him? We love him by loving the people that we do see, that he has created. So if God seems abstract and nebulous, he becomes more real when we seek the good of people around us. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor is actually from Leviticus 19. And there, the Jewish law spells out a broad, holistic understanding of neighbor. Loving your neighbor means loving the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, the migrant, the refugee, the marginalized, the disinherited. Jesus reminds Israel that loving the neighbor means loving the ethnic other, the Samaritan, the Gentile, the Romans. Loving the neighbor means loving the enemy, the oppressor, the occupiers, the colonizers and captors. Loving others means seeking justice for all so that all may flourish. Can we really do this? Can Ukrainians and Russians love each other? Can Israelis and Palestinians? We have to believe that we can.
and we must. Because Jesus modeled this kind of love, and he intentionally built his disciples into this kind of community. In the mid-20th century, Clarence Jordan was a white pastor and farmer who founded Cononia Farm in Americus, Georgia, as an intentional community of interracial, pacifist Christians, black and white, living and working together in the Deep South. And they were routinely attacked and firebombed and shot at, but they continued together in loving neighbor and enemy. How? Clarence Jordan looked at the example of Jesus and his disciples, and especially Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. Jordan said that Matthew was the federal government agent enforcing integration. He was a collaborationist with occupying forces. And Simon the zealot was the diehard patriot waving the Confederate flag, saying the South would rise again. Zealots warred against federal taxation and laws of empire. And if you had the chance to assassinate a federal agent like a tax collector, you should take it. But Jesus puts the government agent together with the insurrectionist and expects them not to kill each other. He teaches them to love one another because now the enemy is the neighbor. What does it mean to love the neighbor? For us here locally, the prior step is getting to know the neighbor, and that's the challenge. Uh, the Parish Collective is an organization that emphasizes local neighborhood ministry, and one of their themes is know your eight, the number eight. Think of the eight neighbors physically closest to your home, three across the street, one on either side next door, and then three behind you. That's your eight, or whatever might be the eight in closest proximity, dorm rooms, or apartments on your hall, or cubicles at work, next to your workspace. Who are your eight? Can you name them? Some years ago, I read the book, The Wisdom of Stability, by Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, and it talks about how in monastic traditions, people didn't just make vows to join the order, they also had a vow of stability, to stay in a particular place. So they would be in a local community for the rest of their life and build relationships with that particular neighborhood and land and people. And I resonate that. I practice stability in my various locations. We've been at this church for 18 years, in our neighborhood for 25 years, been at my work for 29 years. So I tend to practice stability. But the irony now is that people come and go around me. One challenge of the suburban context is that people are always moving in and out. People tend to move an average of once every five years, so you might get to know the people next door or across the street, but then they move. Uh, we used to know the neighbor across the street. Uh, her name was Eldona. She gave out full-size Snicker bars at Halloween. <laughs> but, but then she died, and a newer family moves in, and we don't know their, their names. On average, people move to change jobs every 4.2 years. And one report found that 21% of millennials, one in five, changed jobs in the past year of 2022. And that's three times higher than non-millennials. So workers might only be in your workplace for a few years before moving on. All of this makes it hard to build relationships. Uh, when Ellen and I got married, we, our first apartment was in Westmont, and our church at the time had a visitor day where they encouraged all the regular members to invite visitors to come to church that particular Sunday. We were new to the area, we didn't know anybody, but there was another young couple in our apartment building that we had sort of seen around and chatted with a little bit, and we were feeling guilty and pressured from the church to invite somebody, so, so we invited them to church. And much to our surprise, they actually came to church on visitor day. They sat in the back, they left after the service, and they never came back. 
we biffed it. What we should have done first, long before ever inviting them to church, was to invite them over for dinner. Get to know them first. One ministry expert says, cook out, not church. Cook out before church. Invite people over for a cookout long before you ever invite them to a church event. Get to know people in informal settings and build relationships. One university leader in Canada, uh, Linda McGibbon, lived in a high-rise apartment building in Toronto. And she wanted to get to know her neighbors, and she took this command, love your neighbor, literally, and invited her apartment neighbors over for a dinner open to anybody who would come. Uh, her book, My Vertical Neighborhood, tells the story of how this group of strangers became a community. Yeah, with neighbors from all spiritual backgrounds gathering for weekly dinners and other events like writing groups or holiday celebrations, people came and went, but a core group stayed together for years and their lives were changed. People experienced the love of God and neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor, but that's not all. For some of us, the hardest thing is hidden here. Love your neighbor as yourself. It can be easier to love others sometimes than to love yourself. But Jesus' statement assumes that you can and will love your neighbor as you do yourself. He's saying that you yourself have the capacity for love. You are beloved. You're already pre-loved by God. Let me reframe what it means to love yourself. It's not a narcissistic self-absorption. It's recognizing the worth that God has already given you. Created in the image of God, you're of infinite value. You've been redeemed by Jesus as his precious jewel. It's treating yourself with the same dignity and health that you would give to other people. Sometimes we can be kind to others, but cruel to ourselves. Don't be cruel. Don't be mean to yourself. Some personality types have loud internal critics. Be kind to yourself. Practice self-care. Attend to your mental health. Some look in the mirror and hate what they see. Suicide rates have gone up significantly the last few years. A few weeks ago, I was at a suicide prevention event at Wheaton College where we watched the movie Dear Evan Hansen and then had a panel discussion. And attendees submitted questions anonymously on an app. And I could read the questions coming in on the app before we answered them. And there were heartbreaking questions about trauma and abuse and depression and self-worth. And one question asked, why shouldn't I just give up on living and go to be with God in heaven? And my response to that was, what's been helpful for me is to realize there is something about this earthly life that God intends us to live that's worth living here and now. When Lazarus died, when Jairus' daughter died, Jesus didn't say, oh, they're in a better place now. No, he brought them back to life, to this life, because there is something about this life that was better than death. Even though they would die again eventually, there was still more for them here. Jesus could have arranged our salvation remotely from heaven, but he intentionally came to this earth to live this human life himself. This human life is worth living, so much so that God himself came to earth to live it. God created this world and declared it good. Yes, it's fallen. Yes, it's a mess and painful, but it's a world of beauty and joy and life. So we connect this with our church's vision statement, journeying together, loving God, loving others, loving life. Loving life is not just a hedonistic, yahoo, the world is fun. 
Loving life is an affirmation that this life is worth living, that your life matters. Loving life is a statement that we choose life, that life is good. This life is good and better than death. And how we love God and love others we, by proclaiming to the world around us that life is worth living, you matter to God, and his love is here for you. So own your belovedness. Know you are beloved by God, and that enables you to love God and others. We love because he first loved us. Ellen and I have seen over 200 musicals, and my all-time favorite musical is Les Miserables, the epic story of redemption and grace and forgiveness and love, especially the connection they make between divine love and human love. A key line in the musical says, to love another person is to see the face of God. And the original novel by Victor Hugo says, to love or to have loved, that is enough. Ask nothing further. There is no other pearl to be found in the dark folds of life. So, love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on this. The God of love invites us to be a people of love, living a life of love. Go and do likewise. Beloved, be loved, and be loved.